Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Verse four. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I want to read to you two poems, and the first one is called, What I Dread Has Befallen Me. As you hear these poems, I want you to think, what kind of circumstances must someone have been going through to be able to pen these words? Here's what it says. Let the day perish on which I was born. And the night which said, a boy is conceived, may that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not come forth from the womb and expire? Or be like a miscarriage which is discarded? Why is light given to him who suffers and life to the bitter of soul, who long for death, but there is none, and dig for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice greatly and exult when they find the grave? My cries pour out like water, for what I fear has come upon me, and what I dread befalls me. Here's the second poem. It's called I Hated My Life starts off, I hated my life. The work and success were worthless. All of it is pointless, running. Running after something I can never catch. I hated all things that I had worked for in this world because I am required to leave them to someone who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or a fool, yet they will have control over all the wealth of my life's hard work. This is pointless. At the times these poems were written, they were written by some of the wealthiest people on the planet. In fact, if you have a a little bit of Bible knowledge, you may have picked up the first one is actually simply from the book of Job. This is a man who lost everything that was important to him, all of his wealth, his home, his children. He was devastated in ways that probably very few people in this room could even begin to understand. The second was written by King Solomon. It's extracted from the book of Ecclesiastes. And King Solomon was the wealthiest man who had ever lived. And what we find in this is that he gets to the end of his life and he looks at everything he had worked for and sadness and sorrow and grief fill his heart because of the reality of what's coming next. I mean, if you just take a cursory look at scripture, a third of the Psalms are lament or they're songs of sadness. In fact, there's an entire book. It's just called Lamentations. Um, Ecclesiastes, what Solomon wrote, is pretty bluntly a book written by a pretty depressed guy as he examines his failure of a life despite the success of what people looked on from the outside. I mean, there's an entire book of the Bible written, 40-some chapters, about how to grieve. That's the book of Job and what happens behind the scenes plausibly when we are. Even the Messiah uh, in the book of Isaiah is promised to be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Ultimately, the Messiah would be one who is crushed. I mean, the scriptures, I just want you to hear me, they are not irrelevant, but they are a masterpiece of empathy and understanding of the human condition. They are powerful. 
we see that in scripture and in life, to be honest, that mourning and depression and sadness and sorrow, they do not discriminate. They hit everybody from the wealthy to the poor to those who seem to have it all together. You name it, sorrow and mourning does not discriminate. In fact, if you were gonna choose to love, you are inevitably, I want you to hear me, you're inevitably choosing excruciating pain. If you are married, there's a 50-50% chance that you will watch your husband or your wife suffer and then die. Um, If you become a parent, the stats are less, but the longer you live, the more likely it is that you will have to go through the unthinkable, which is for a mom or dad to watch their son or daughter suffer and die. Uh, If you live long enough, uh, the vast majority of of you in this room, you are going to watch your mother and your father whom you loved, who were strong, who were always there, you were gonna watch them get sick and die. And to love, to really make a decision to love somebody is to walk into an inevitable life where there will be seasons of excruciating pain and heartache. Mourning is inescapable and the Bible does not hide from it or run from it. And so Jesus speaks into one of the most universal experiences that we have. And here's what he says. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so uh, open up your notes with me. And number one, point number one in your notes says bless, or it says empathize. Does God understand? Let me just give you some context. We're in a series in the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes is a Latin word, which means um, happy or blessing. Uh, These are eight blessings that Jesus is going to give to people who trust in him as a part of his kingdom. And these Beatitudes are the intro to the most important influential sermon ever given by any preacher, the Sermon on the... Mount, awesome. And this sermon would revolutionize and change um, the way the Jewish people and the followers of Christ began to understand the nature of God's kingdom. And Jesus is launching his earthly ministry and just gives one of the most incredible sermons ever. So we get to delve into his introduction. Jesus had in the Sermon on the Mount, particularly in the Beatitudes, three big goals we talked about last week. The goal, number one, is to empathize. That if you Despite your plight or your poverty or your frustration or your mourning, your grief, your sadness, your depression, whatever it was, whatever you came to the table with, when you were with Jesus, here's what you would leave him feeling. That guy gets me. That guy understands me. Somehow, sinners, tax collectors, people who had nothing, the broke, the poor, the rich, there's something about Jesus that he understood because Jesus had this powerful way to sit in your shoes, to listen, and to empathize. And I think we could say this, there is no sorrow you would know that he could not firsthand empathize with. The second thing he did is he wanted to bless. He understood that there are natural ways we as humans do things, but the way of true human flourishing and blessing is often the opposite. And that there are ways that we see the world, and if we do these things, they mitigate human flourishing in the image of God. And he says there's a better way to live, the way of God, the master who designed each and every human and relationships and all of these things, there's a better way to do it and it's a counterintuitive way and he wants to enter into this crazy that we call life and show us how to thrive and flourish as humans made in the image of God and for the sake of Jesus. He also wants to give us a blessing, a promise 
that yes, this is real, but one day, one day, there's gonna be something that's even better. The third thing he has to do is he's gotta recalibrate. So let's be honest, every one of you who walk into this room, okay, um, there are things in your mind that are not accurate or correct. And if Jesus could get up and teach, here's what he would do. He would start to dismantle your wrong ideas, put you back together and recalibrate you so that your mind and your heart and your actions are aligned with his heart and his mind and his actions. A master teacher is going to dismantle you, break you apart, and put you back together, and Jesus is the best. We find in every beatitude that Jesus is finding his people, these Jews, have hundreds of years of pent-up wrong ideas, and he has to dismantle them and put them back together. And so as we look at this first part, I want to define mourning with you. Mourning is the emotional experience of grief over loss. Mourning implies two things. Number one, it implies that you have personally lost something that you want back. Uh, number two, it implies you care. You cannot truly mourn over something that you don't really want back. So to, to mourn, I want you to get this, that to enter into the state of mourning requires a soul, <laughs> requires for you to care and to be engaged now, there are three general categories of, of mourning. So let's look at these. The first category is, is death. It's the person that you have lost that you want back. Uh, it's that friend, your spouse, your son, your daughter, your grandkid, the miscarriage, the list goes on and on. And when you experience death, this tends to be one of the most emotional, intense versions of mourning. Uh, the second kind of mourning comes in the category of disappointment. This would be unmet expectation, unrealized desires. You got married to this person. You thought they were going to be amazing. And you have to mourn the loss or the unmet expectation you have. Do not nudge your husband and wife. Like in the first service, I saw three people like, bam. The other one looked at him like this, like, stop it. Uh, don't do that. That's not helpful in this scenario. Um, this is not what I thought it would be, the loss of your job, of your house. You had this uh, lifestyle, this expectation of the way life was going to be, the people who were going to be around you, the happiness you would feel, uh, the fruit you would bear, the success you would accomplish. And there's a general just sweeping disappointment that the majority of people have to come to grips with that life has not met our expectations in a number of ways. And then number three is this issue of deficiency where you really do realize not only have I let others down, but I have let myself down, and I have let God down. When you realize that you have fallen short, not just of your own standards, and that your falling short has not just made your life harder and the people's life around you, but it has genuinely created a distance between you and God, which is what sin does, and you realize that your deficiency before God is what sent Jesus to the cross, that when Jesus hung on the cross and God the Father poured his infinite and righteous wrath and anger on the body, soul, and emotions of Jesus Christ, that it was your punishment that he was taken. It was your sin that he bore on himself. And you realize that my deficiency, my lack, my falling short of not just my standards and your standards, but God's standards has created this chasm and there's nothing I can do to make it right unless God forgives me and makes it right himself. I mean, this becomes one of the most important parts of mourning, that if the Christian does not know how to mourn their sin, they will never come into a relationship with God. In fact, well, here's what we learn about mourning. If you want to become a Christian, if you want the kingdom of God, if you want the kingdom of heaven, you will not get it until you come to Jesus sorrowful over your sin. 
This is the requirement. I mean, if your kid comes up to you and then you say to them, say you're sorry, and they go, sorry. I mean, does that like make everything okay, right? No. And yet there's a whole bunch of people who believe that because I have intellectual assent to the fact that Jesus is God and the Father raised him from the dead, but I have no mourning nor have I ever had over my sin whatsoever, they think that somehow God and them are reconciled. And one of the first things that happens when somebody truly trusts in Christ and receives salvation is that there's actual, genuine, emotional mourning and sadness over your sin, hear me, followed by an incredible wave of relief and satisfaction that the payment has been satisfied by Jesus. But this is a requirement that if you want the kingdom of heaven there, if you want the blessing there, it begins with genuine mourning over your sin now. So as Jesus, he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to, I just want you to see this. This is palpable in this audience. Each one of these. So uh, we've talked about last week how if you're going to read the Sermon on the Mount or anything happening in the Gospels, you have to eradicate this idea of the middle class. Because in America, we have a middle class. They did not. They had the poor and they had the rich. This is why Jesus had to feed a whole bunch of people because they were starving and hungry. And if he didn't feed them, they wouldn't have a meal. And so this is what we understand is that in this audience, death was very personal and near. I don't know if you know this, but the infant mortality rates were unusually high. They did not have the modern marvels of medicine. Life expectancy was ridiculously low. Uh, miscarriages, babies dying, one years old, two years, common for mothers to lose multiple children and have to figure out how to move on in life. So Jesus can look at this crowd and say, blessed are you who are mourn. I can see your story and your story. I can see disappointment in your face. I don't know about you, but I've never met a poor person who's like, this is my dream come true. I'm impoverished and on. I have nothing. I don't even know where food's going to come from, but I could not have wished for a better future, right? That's not how it works. When you talk with a bunch of poor people, here's what you find, disappointment unmet expectations. And all of these are very emotional and real life circumstances sitting right in front of Jesus. Not only that, you have this issue of deficiency that they all have to face. Uh, They are probably surrounded on the outer circle of this sermon, uh, a bunch of elitist religious Pharisees and Sadducees who think they are amazing because they obey every jot and tittle of the law. Now, have you ever had that cousin or that family member who thinks they're better than you, who judges you, who looks down on you. Again, don't, don't nudge them if they're sitting right next to you. Please don't do that. But that person who is holier than thou and self-righteous, well, the entire Jewish religious system at this time was broken up into those who kept the law and those who were being exploited, those who were being charged exorbitant amount of money so that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priestly system could actually get wealthier off of these things. They abused the law and the poor got poorer, the rich got richer, and these religious people oppressed them and they understood very clearly, I am deficient spiritually. Jesus is talking to a group of people, by the way, who get these three Ds very carefully, very clearly. So let's talk about how people mourn. Let's talk about how Americans mourn. Um, Every culture mourns differently. Have you guys seen that as you travel the world and you see how people do things? Um, Americans, we do a couple things. Number one, we numb pain. We numb pain. You know what I'm talking about, right? If it's not drugs, if it's not alcohol, we figure out how to numb our pain through busyness or distraction. Anything that we can do to avoid discomfort, we do. In fact, When you find someone who is mourning and weeping and wailing, don't you just feel a little bit awkward, right? Why? Because that's not what we do as a culture. As a culture, we expect to be comforted. We expect that there should be no pain. And if there is a God who loves me, to be honest, that God would take away my pain and make me happy all the time. 
And so what we do is we numb this, and we have so many different mechanisms of numbing. But then number two, we avoid pain at all costs. We avoid it. Anything we can do, especially emotional pain, we will do anything we can so that we don't have to face this. Go back with me into the Garden of Eden. You have this man and this woman and a beautiful relationship walking with God in the Garden of Eden. There is no sin. They are naked and they are unashamed. Then something happens and they rebel, they sin. And in a moment, here's what happens. As soon as they recognize the pain that is inside of them, number one, they run away. Number two, they cover themselves and they hide themselves. And then number three, they play hide and seek from God. God walks in as if he doesn't know what like, is going on. Hey guys, where you at? Oh, we don't know, we're just hiding, right? Like God knows, he's not dumb. He's, he understands exactly what's going on. And then the man, ultimately, moron, says, the woman you gave, she made me do that, right? And then we end up in blame. Anything we can do to divert ourselves from facing it, taking responsibility, we cover it up, we avoid it, we numb ourselves. And the same thing that happened with Adam and Eve, it's being retold over and over and over again, billions of times in each of our lives, especially in America. This is just such the American condition. But number three, here's what we do. We make pain, if we're not gonna avoid it and shun it and like stuff it deep down inside, we're gonna make pain our identity. I cut and I make sure people know I'm gonna put my pain on the outside. It's gonna be my identity. It's gonna carry with me forever and always. And I'm gonna make sure everybody who knows me knows that my life is one of pain because this is the most important part of my life that you could know about. I mean, we're dysfunctional, it seems like, in every way. So let's talk about how did the Jews actually deal with pain? Well, in a couple ways. Number one, I think this is actually striking and so counterintuitive for us. Um, they had a practice going back thousands of years of wearing sackcloth and ashes. By the way, sackcloth is not comfortable. You don't want to wear sackcloth. And so here's what they would do. They would intentionally walk into mourning. They would embrace it, and they would take this uncomfortable clothing, put it on themselves. They would get ashes and dust and put it onto their heads and then they would wail loudly. And this was not weird. This was acceptable. Uh, the Jews have this understanding of mourning historically that says mourning is something that is a human experience that is to be embraced and walked into. Yes, limits need to be set upon it, but if we avoid it, it sticks with us, stays in us, oppresses us, and comes out of us in all these dysfunctional ways. The Jews had this profound understanding that we, the people of God, are not afraid of emotions. We walk into them. Unlike the American story of most men, which is, uh, don't cry, real men don't cry, or uh, they don't show any feeling, they just stuff it down as much as possible, right? There's something about the biblical man that is much more in tune with weeping and mourning and sadness and is unafraid that other people might think that they're weird. It's very interesting. So the Jews, actually, some of them would even hire professional mourners. So when somebody would die, they would come in and they would wail for them. Uh, I, I want to give you an illustration of why this might be effective because it may feel like you're manufacturing mourning. Have you ever played that game where, try this at home, not right now because that'd be weird. Maybe by yourself would be even funnier. Um, go home and just start laughing, manufacture it. And within like a minute, you're just laughing at yourself at how absolutely hilarious you are, right? None of you have done that? Am I the only one? Okay, good. It's fine. But oftentimes, there's so much repressed emotion 
we have been trained diligently from the time we were little, from every avenue, from mom and dad and TV and culture and friends and everything else to repress every emotion inside of us. And so what happens is sometimes they do this and it just allows the emotions to slowly release. And it's actually an interesting strategic way of taking down the barrier and allowing yourself to actually mourn and grieve in that moment. The second thing Jews would do, uh, it's been called practicing shiva. Uh, there's a lot of details in this, and it's actually really meaningful. Shiva is a Hebrew word for seven, and, and what would happen is they would set a period of days after an immediate family member had died. And uh, in this period of seven days, um, this person would either go to the deceased home or to their own home. And throughout the entire seven days, they're almost never alone. Every day, a rabbi would come in and would pray scripture over the person. Uh, people would come in and out and in and out, tons and tons and tons of 